this week, I continue the Bellingham Brewery Tour with Illuminati Brewery and head brewer and founder Bill Kimmerly. Illuminati is a very young brewery that spawned from a winery that's been around for a while. Bill takes his old winery skills and a lifetime worth of homebrewing knowledge and turns it into pop culture inspired beers at Illuminati Brewery. He also talks a little bit about some of the hardships of having a tap room that is just a little bit outside the walking radius for the residents of Bellingham. I'm the cycling certified Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. So my name is Bill Kimmerly. I'm the owner of Illuminati Brewing Company and Masquerade Wine Company. Yeah, Masquerade Wine Company. So that was around here before Illuminati, huh? Yeah, so I started Masquerade in 2004 when I lived in Eastern Washington. And at the end of uh, the 2010 harvest, I closed my tasting room in Prosser and I moved the business here. Um, Set up Masquerade in a warehouse closer to downtown um, where I operated until the end of 2016 and then I took over the lease in this building and um, moved in in earnest to open up the brewery which um, our, our official opening was October 13th of 2017 so we are just coming up on our one-year anniversary where okay I can kind of see the thematic resemblance between Illuminati and Masquerade. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, I, I tried to come up with some thematic connection between the two. Um, and how I got there is to describe Masquerade as mysterious but fun and Illuminati as mysterious but dark. Mm, okay. So you'll notice that in the naming of a lot of our beers that we touch on pop culture and conspiracy theories and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of things like that. I'm looking at the uh, Anonymous Ale, MK Ultra, Rye Pale Ale, Grim Reaper, Skull and Bones, Stormborn. Yeah, yep. a lot of uh, a lot of really good kind of kind of dark sounding names. Yeah, yeah, and I, we felt or I felt that that was a real gap in the branding of. Um, the breweries, the other breweries in Bellingham, mm-hmm. you know, here's my IPA, here's my red ale. Um, yeah. there, nobody had really sort of taken on um, a thematic branding approach to their beers. For example, um, I just came from Aslan yeah. uh, doing a similar interview over there. And they've got, um, you know, their, Aslan is not a name that evokes a certain beer type or a style or anything like that. It doesn't really even provoke a, uh, I don't know, a particular emotion really illuminati though kind of gets you thinking about it and there's a little bit there's something to be said about kind of how hard it was to find y'all yeah (laughs) like rolling up and like kind of getting into the uh you know you pull into this uh parking lot here and then you see there's no sign like there's a sign on the road but you're not exactly sure what door it's pointing at and you know that kind of stuff and you get in here and um but then when you get inside it's actually much more of a um kind of open oaky sort of uh you know a wine a wine tasting room yeah and it has less of a beer feeling to it i guess my question is where like where do you see that going like the illuminati brand it's got there's lots of work with a lot of cool stuff you can kind of do here yeah um 
Well, you know, I, I think the future of the business is um, right now we just sell the beer in in kegs and mm. growlers to go. Uh-huh. So we need to move into packaging. Right. Um, and that might initially be some large format bottles. And then at some point down the road, it will be uh, we'll, we'll move into cans. Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to help extend the brand a lot uh, in a lot more straightforward of a way down to Seattle and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also uh, entertaining the possibility of opening up a second tap room downtown. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are a little bit far out. You're sort of kind of kind of deep in here. Next to some yeah. good bike trails, but not, not the yeah, easiest place it's, to get that, to. That that's a, has been kind of an odd thing for me to understand. Um, what people think of as normal, mm-hmm. uh, because in, in all honesty, as you you know, if you go to breweries in Redmond or Kirkland, they're all in business parks. Yep. You know, I, I was down in Bend a few weeks ago. Two thirds of the breweries are in business parks. Absolutely, yeah. And it's just such a foreign concept in Bellingham, and I I don't really understand why that is, but it is. Um, but it's been a challenge for us, yeah. You know, to to get people to to come out here. That it, that's it, you know, it's funny you say it like that because you know even in Seattle, you know, you got to go go ways to get to a lot of breweries. Sure. Like there, there are areas of it. You know, Ballard has a pretty high density of breweries. But if you want to go to yeah, like Redden, Redden, Redmond and Woodenville, all those areas out there, you really do have to. You know, you, yeah, you ride, and there's lots of breweries just like this that are, yeah. you know. And, and yeah. even, you know, Ballard, one of the reasons Ballard has a lot of breweries is there's a lot of industrial space. There, yeah. Right? Downtown space is expensive. You know, it tends to be historical, which rates go up. It tends to be retail-focused. Rates go up. Parking is hard to come by, and, you know, there are parking fees that businesses have to pay to the city. We don't have to pay those out here. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not as easy as one might think to just drop a brewery downtown. Mm-hmm. Would you say so far, you know, business-wise, that kind of being out here was an okay decision? I mean, in terms of trade-offs, of foot traffic, and the visibility in terms of like those lower fees? Or you were saying you do want to open up a, a, a brew pub? Well, we town. clearly need to open up something downtown. Yeah. But, you know, our, our, our needs are different because we don't need to do production downtown. But I, I think we, we, we need to be downtown. Mm-hmm. You know, we just don't get enough traffic out here. We kind of dived into the business stuff a little fast. Um, I do want to I want to go back and talk a little more about your, you know, your winemaking experience and how you sort of parlay that into the beer and uh, to the beer industry. So so yeah, go back. Tell me, give me, point me a picture. Yeah. Of so I, I started. Uh, well, first of all, I started home brewing in 1981. So I don't know anybody who started before that. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> it just um, become legal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it literally had like two years prior in the Carter administration. Um, I started home winemaking in probably 95, 2004. I found myself transferred to a new job in eastern Washington, Washington wine country. It just, you know, and, and at, that, at that time, small wineries were hot, mm-hmm. right? So, and I had been toying for years with the idea of opening a winery. Um, so we did, and um, well, I guess, you know, 15 years later, we're still around. It says something about the brand. Yeah. Um, but when I, so I, I, I moved the, the winery here to Bellingham for a number of reasons, not the least of which is I 
preferred living on the coast rather than in the high desert. Um, Easy choice for a lot of us. It, it, it is, especially since I had, I'd been a coastal person my whole life. Um, and w when I moved the business here, um, Boundary Bay obviously had been around for a while. Um, and Chuckanut was probably about a year old. Um, but that was all that was here. And then after uh, Masquerade had been here about a year and a half, um, the first Colchon opened up. Mm. And um, from that opening to every successive brewery opening in town, um, I have made an effort to go on day one, and they've all been packed, right? Every one of them had as many people in their door at that time as I would get in a couple months in the winery. So it was clear that, you know, in order to compete and have a viable business, you know, vying for people's discretional drinking time, we needed to move into beer. But I didn't want to abandon wine because I, I've always liked, you know, kind of um, talking about presenting, serving both at the same time. There's sort of, yeah, wine has, well, beer has this now, but historically wine has always had the... Um, I guess the element of classiness to it, you know, sure. there's yeah. this, uh, you know, you're having a, a glass of wine and it's always very fancy and you're, you're you know, you, it's pretty elegant. It's an yeah. elegant drink. Yeah. Beer yeah. doesn't quite necessarily have that, but it definitely has mind share these days. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, wh where we've been very successful with that is, um, you know, couples in small groups where not everybody agrees on what they want, beer mm -hmm. or wine, you come to Illuminati and masquerade because you can get both. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so a lot of our customers fall into that category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's clever. That is actually a really good, a good sort of matter of convenience. And that's probably why you'd get extra benefit from being in town for that yeah. kind of thing. Because yeah. people, people a, a young couple who doesn't agree walking downtown, you're like, oh, where do we go? Yeah. It'd be a lot, it's a lot easier to roll into the downtown location. Yeah. It would be to make it all the way. Right. Here. And, you know, yeah. most breweries don't serve wine at all. Right. And the few that do... You know, they're going to ask if you want red or white. They're not going to ask you, do you want Cabernet Syrah or Pinot Noir? What's the permitting situation like on that? Like the breweries that I know, like have to have, you have to have a special license, you know, depending on the state, depending on the city, I guess. But, you know, is there, was there anything weird you need to do to serve beer and wine? Um, so the feds don't really care. Mm -hmm. Okay. They, they'll issue a winery permit, a brewery permit. You know, they just need to know the parameters of the building. Okay. The state was the challenge. And for the longest time, the state would not permit wine and beer manufacturing in the same facility. Hmm. Um, if we wanted to do it, we would have had to have put up a wall uh -huh. between the two. And in fact, there was one very celebrated case of that. So two beers in Seattle mm -hmm. and... The Seattle Cider Company. That's right. Okay. Are both owned by the same people. Ah. Okay. You make cider under a winery license. The state would not let them open until hmm. they built a wall in their building to separate the cider production from the beer production. And so I think the absurdity of that case got it on the radar of people in the legislature mm -hmm. and then that's what I did is I, I just started talking to our local reps 
telling what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Because LCB is not going to change the rules. They, that's not their mandate. They enforce the rules that are made by the legislature. Um, so, you know, once I got enough of ear time with some of the legislators, it just made it into the biannual liquor bill. And so as of 2016, it was allowed. Wow. So this is, you know, was enabled in a very direct way by mm-hmm. your yeah. lobbying. Yeah. Of. Yeah. Cool. Did you um, ask for help from the, you know, the, the Brewers Guild or anything like that? I didn't, no. Um, at the time, I didn't know of the Brewers Guild. Um, and I guess even if I did, I don't, I don't know a priori how interested they would be to help mm-hmm. out a winery. Right. Um, but, you know, once I found the right people to talk to, it really was, you know, people got it. Yeah. You know, they, they, they know how valuable both industries are to the state. Why wouldn't you want to enable a business to be able to manufacture and present both? Absolutely. Was there any gimmicks to that law? Was it just like, nope, nope, it's fine now. You need two permits? Or well, it, it was enabled in a, in a very um, minimalist and obscure way. And, and the, the verbiage was um, that license holders are permitted to hold multiple licenses as long as there are no on reporting or on reporting conflicts, which basically meant all we need to do is report our taxes separately. Easy peasy. Yeah, that's super easy. How did your wine making skills transfer over to beer making skills? Did you, I mean, I imagine, you know, most people get started in the industry, like would get started making wine because they're obsessed with wine. They know all this stuff. And then one day you decided, hey, I want to know about beer. Or did that sort of did they did you know did those skills grow together? How did that how did that transition? Well, you know, I I guess they they grew together, and you know, of course, you know, I've been a an amateur brewer for a lot longer than I've been a winemaker. Right. Um. But, you know, making wine is a lot more forgiving, mm-hmm. right? Because it's higher alcohol, there are less spoilage mm-hmm. bacteria or organisms that can ruin your product. Um, you have to be a lot more clean with mm-hmm. beer. Um, and, you know, that that's really one of a, the major learning curves, I think, for people who start out as home brewers and decide I want to open a brewery, is really getting your mind on how you need to uh, organize the, the cleaning aspect of what you do. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was well aware of that, but... Um, when we started doing beer here, I, I did hire an experienced brewer. Oh, okay. So, um, although I, I had, you know, all the equipment and I had, you know, grain and hops and I was ready to go and I was just fortunate enough to have a, you know, young man who had worked a few years at Coulson oh, okay. wander in one day and had decided he was tired of making the the same beer at Coulson day after day. You want to do something new and different. A little smaller. Yeah, yeah. So um, we decided, you know, well, you know, I was going to brew for the first time tomorrow. Let's brew together. And he's been running it ever since. So yeah. what's, what's his name or her name? Uh, Ryan Flood. Um, and then the young man you saw when you came in is his brother, BJ. Oh, nice. So they, they work here together. Oh, that's yeah. cool. A little family operation, yep. kind of. Yep. Um, and then the other thing I'll tell you is, 
so before I started professionally in wine and beer, um, I spent about 25 years in the biotech and pharma field. So I have a PhD in molecular biology. Um, and I actually started homebrewing when I was a graduate student at Berkeley because what a graduate student's like, but good beer that's cheap. And for cheap, yeah. Right. So, you know, I was in a biochemistry lab and, you know, we had autoclaves and carboys and yeast media and it was like, well, let's, let's make beer. So we, that's how I started. What was it like back then? What was, what was the scene? So I've been alive for yeah. fewer years than you've been homebrewing. So, okay, so I, w- I was in Berkeley, okay? Um, at the time, there were no homebrew shops in the entire Bay Area. Um, there was a home winemaking store in Albany, which is an East Bay community. It's just north of Berkeley, called the Oak Barrel. And what they had was um, a barrel rack with three stainless steel barrels with light, medium, and dark liquid extract. And that was it. And then little bindle bags of hops that who knows how old they were and packets of pastor yeast. And that was it. That's how you made beer back then. Um, A few years later, when you know the first wave of Northern California breweries um, came out, Papazian's first edition of his book came out. Um, now all of a sudden there were a few um, homebrew stores throughout the Bay Area, and you could get, you know, reasonable selections of grains and slightly better quality of hops, and you know a little bit better equipment. Um, and it kind of persisted like that for a while, and then you know probably five to ten years later mid 90s the the quality of everything went up um and you know now you've got you know guys with brew sculptures and you know kegerators and you know home brewing at a fairly significant level right and, and making much higher quality stuff than anyone could possibly do back in the early and mid 80s. What were some of the uh, types of beer you brewed back then? You know, I've always been a pale ale guy. When I go to a new brewery, I usually have the pale ale first because that's kind of the, you know, my canary in the coal mine. If, mm-hmm. if I like the pale, chances are the other beers are, are good. Yeah. Um, so with that said, on broad, broadening that out a bit, uh, you know, I am a big fan of English beers, you know, cask condition, real ales. Um, bringing in cask engines is something that we hope to do in the next few months. Um, you know, most breweries, is, as you know, we've traveled around, we'll have a cask. You know, maybe they'll just do it on a Friday or something. But That's very right, few places... Friday or something like that. Exactly, but very few places do it properly. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't put the right beer in it. They don't condition it properly. They don't serve it at the right temperature. So it, it quite often does not impress people the way it should. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, uh, th- there is one place in Seattle, the Machine House. Absolutely um, heard of them. They know what they're doing. They're great. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's a place that we went to a couple weeks ago in Denver. Um, when we were there for GABF called Hogshead. 
Mm -hmm. and half of their production is in cask. Um, so, you know, there are a few places scattered around the country where, you know, they take cask conditioned beers very seriously and do them very well. Um, but it's, it, it's a style of beer and beer delivery that's um, just not on people's radar here. And one of the things that we've done well in the past and we like to do is to introduce people to, to new things in wine and beer. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hopefully in a few months be one of those few places in the country that does a very serious job at cast condition beers. Well, I guess there's a little bit of overlap between, you know, in the space between beer and wine, cask beer might sort of fall there. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I, I'm, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that of the places I've gone, I've traveled to, for, to a lot of places for beer. Um, I've done Germany and Belgium and Austria and even Ireland, but didn't quite make it to England yeah. to do any proper cask beers. Yeah. So that's one of those things. Yeah, so I don't know whether there's much cask beer in, in Ireland. I've never been no, there. Not, no. not really, it's not a popular thing in Ireland. Okay. Yeah. Mostly just Guinness. Yeah. Craft beer is picking up there, but yeah. Guinness, you go there to drink Guinness. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. How about you paint a picture of a non-brewery bill? What do you what do you do outside of outside of working here? Um, well, I guess my my major uh, extracurricular curricular pursuit would be uh, uh, live music. Um, Belling has a good place for that too, right? It it, it is. Um, you know, depending on the style you like. Um, I'm, you know. Full disclosure: I'm a jam band guy. Oh yeah. So, um, you know, quite often I'm I'm on the road to, to see the bands I want to see. Family? Um, I have a sister. I have uh, three sisters and a brother, who, all who live in British Columbia. I, I was uh, I was I was born in Detroit to two Canadian parents, so I grew up in Canada. But mm. I, I have the papers. Ah, uh, there you go. So uh, I've I've lived lived in the United States since I was twenty. What so as a relative newcomer to the Bellingham beer scene, I mean, have you did you ever consider opening a you know opening your brewery or moving your brewery to Seattle or you know Tacoma or even you know Colorado going to you know playing a Denver game? No, um, you know I like living here. Um, I I like our beer community. Um, I think you know there's there's a lot of unfortunately a lot of negatives about. Seattle, just the cost of living, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the cost of doing business and, you know, much more regulation down there with, you know, the city and the health department. I mean, it's bad enough up here, um, but the bigger communities you get to, you know, they, they take it up a notch. Are you feeling the, like, competition here in Bellingham? We don't with these other breweries or wineries? You know, I think we're fairly isolated from it out here because we're not competing for the downtown traffic. Um, we do very well with Canadian traffic because we're the one brewery that's north of downtown. Mm. Okay, a lot of Canadians come down to shop, they go to Costco, or they go to the mall. Both of those are north of downtown and straight shots here. Mm -hmm. So we do well with that. We do really well with people from out of town who just, you know, type in brewery or winery in their search engine and you know we usually come up first oh yeah i don't know what i did to yeah, make I don't that know happen how, yeah, but... how you managed that one <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
you know, it's funny you mentioned the Canadian traffic because I guess you're Canadian, so you know, kind of more or less Canadian. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I am now a dual citizen, but I, I don't think I, I never, I never let that on to Canadian yeah. customers. So I don't think they're coming here for that, and unless they're people that I knew mm-hmm. when I when I lived there. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, Illuminati brand because yeah. I feel like there's a lot more to unpack there. So, like to me, that already me- that word already means so much. You yeah. know, just not like not like. I'm like Illuminati, like looking for conspiracy theories or anything like that. But, uh, but you know, it it obviously inspired you. So, yeah. like, what maybe were there some like particular tales that kind of grabbed you that brought you towards that name? Other than you know, you already mentioned how you kind of wanted it. You liked how dark and kind of green. Yeah, it was. yeah. I mean, I, I've I've always, uh, you know, I'm not a a, a uh, fanatic or pursuist of conspiracy theories, but mm-hmm. I always find them interesting. You yeah. Know, why Why do people believe what they believe? Yeah. Um, and. I think even the most bizarre ones, there's some amount of truth to them. And, and you know, then again, there, there's a lot of, again, pop culture mm-hmm. that, you know, can, it, maybe not as directly connected to Illuminati, whatever that means to the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you can draw some connection. You know, so we've got our Belgian Pale's Rick Shank Redemption, and that's uh, Rick and Morty mm-hmm. connection. Yeah. Um, Millennium Falcon. Star Wars. Um, actually, it's uh, that that beer. That's that's our flagship beer. We we sell the Millennium Falcon. The Millennium Falcon. We sell double that of the next most popular beer. And um, interesting thing about the, its its name, and there are a few other beers that follow this uh, pattern, but um, they're 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 name gags based on the hops we use. Mm-hmm. So that that beer is made with Millennium, Galaxy, and Falconer's Flight. So there that, you go. That's where we got the name. hard to pass on a pun. With nothing pun to do combo with Star like Wars. Yeah. If you work for Disney, <laughs> um, MK Ultra is another one. So the hops in that are Mercure, Kohatu, and Ultra. Um, as you know, MK Ultra is the name of a CIA mind control project, apparently. Um, where apparently they did experiments on people with LSD. So um, LSD uh, is made from a natural compound called lysergic acid that is made by a fungus called ergot. Ergot grows on rye grains. So that's the other component of the gag for that name. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's the rye pale. Okay, yeah. I see. Come, it comes full circle. Skull and Bones is, uh, that's a, a secret society. I think it's based out of Yale University. You know, so a lot of mucky-muck politicians are part of it. It, it, it I, I don't know a lot about it. It, it sounds like it's, it's like a dark fraternity or something. You know, Butch was part of it. John Kerry was in it. Mm. Mueller is in it. You know. I guess it's... Uh... Was that spoofed in an episode of House of Cards or something? I think maybe it was. So as a home brewer from back in the old days, what do you think about, you know, my, in my mind, that those early home brewers were always in search of kind of the counterculture, right? You know, Budweiser was the only beer in 1982, that Budweiser and Coors and Miller and all. You know, there were actually, I guess there were more um, yeah, well, interesting you beers. say that because um, in 81, I moved to Berkeley. And in addition to those lousy beers, 
the Bay Area also had Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and Anchor Steam. That's right. And those were the first two beers I ever had that weren't yellow. And, and it was just, you know, it's like, wow, what am I drinking? This is really good and interesting. And, you know, I, I blame those two beers for, you know, lighting the fire under me to try and, you know, figure out how is beer made? How can I make something like this? Um, and what was, you know, what, what did that feel like? You know, what was, what, what kind of came after that? Um, well, what came after that for, for me, and I think for a lot of homebrewers at the time, um, it, it was trying to get your mind around classic styles. Um, you know, how do you make, uh, how do you make an oatmeal stout? You know, how do you make, a Pilsner. How do you make a Belgian ale? Yeah, I, will also, I will also say this is in a day when there were no IPAs. Yeah, the the, the industry is not contaminated with that concept. Yeah, um, you know the only I, I I knew of IPAs from Papazian's book, right? Um, and for many years, the only IPA I had, I ever had was in England, the the Green King IPA. Which is really not an IPA. It's just a slightly more hop fragrant bitter. Mm -hmm. You know, three point seven percent. It's a fine beer, but it's really not an IPA. Yeah, that is a match. Yeah, well, I'm thinking about it yeah. at all. Yeah, and then of course, as we've seen in the last five years or so, it's it's going a little bit crazy and weird. Mm -hmm. But you know, but the, 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 these trends ebb and flow. Yeah. Anyway, back to your question. I think in the early days, people were really trying to, you know, come up with clone recipes for the commercial beers they liked, which generally were all solid styles. Um, I think the home brewing uh, focus now, a lot of people are trying to make obscure beers, mm -hmm. things that are flavored with different things or making an IPA with Belgian yeast or Belgian with Pacific Ale yeast or, you know, they're doing all sorts of mixing and matching and, you know, that's fun and I'm sure once in a while you come across something that's pretty cool, mm -hmm. um, but it does have risks. You um, you mentioned Charlie Papazian's book a yeah. couple of times, The yeah. Joy of Homebrewing. Um, that was probably the first book I ever read uh, about homebrewing. That was, but I read that back in 2013. Yeah, second yeah. edition or third yeah. edition, who knows? Yeah. And um, that first edition would have come out, and I imagine it would have been one of the few resources that even existed. So, was there yeah. anything else along those lines that you did? You have any access to any other resources? It, it, it was the only game in town for years. Um, you know, now there are so many brewing books that run the gamut in terms of um, the, the, the technical deep dive mm -hmm. that they will give you. One thing I've always liked about Papazian's book is anyone can read it, anyone mm -hmm. can understand it. You don't need to be a scientist. You know, for me, um, Papazian's book was great, it was an easy read, it was great to get started with, but you know, I came at it from a science technical background and I wanted more and it was, a few years before anything else was mm -hmm. really available. Yeah, you mentioned your you know molecular um, biology degree, and you know obviously having a scientific mind like really helps you in the beer industry. 
how did you kind of focus some of what you knew into what you needed to know to make good beer? Well, you know, it really comes down to the analytical chemistry and, uh, you know, making sure that you have, you trust your equipment, you yeah. calibrate it, um, you know, so when you take a gravity or a pH or measure dissolved oxygen, you, you know you're, you're reading what is as accurate as your instrument can give you. You mentioned earlier the the IPA contamination. Mm -hmm. Now it's contaminated the industry, and I detected a hint of animosity there. You yeah, go yes into and that no. Yes and no. I mean, I I, I like IPAs. Um, what I don't like is um, you know the 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 trend to you know out hop Piney the Elder, mm -hmm. for instance, and just get silly with it um, because those really lose me. Um, the other frustration I have with it is it, it, for the, the consumer, the younger consumer, the less educated consumer, they know IP, they know the word, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, it's like that, that, that's why we sell twice as much Millennium Falcon as anything else, because people want the IPA. Yeah. So here you go. Um, so I, I think it, um, it's been such a buzz that it has prevented people from exploring other styles. Mm -hmm. So we have to try and tease that out of them. You know, you get them hooked with the IPA and it's like, oh, well, try this. Mm -hmm. Right. And the way a lot of places do it is they diversify their IPAs, right? They have six, eight different IPAs. Um, whereas, you know, we're, we're highly diversified. You know, we've got 19 beers on tap. That's we have, right. We have more beers on tap than any brewery in Bellingham. That's a lot, yeah. Um, so, you know, I really try and get people to, to try something else. And um, what I can tell you about our success of doing that is how many tasting flights we sell. Mm-hmm. So you sell like a lot of tasting a lot. Flights. I mean, I guess that, that appeals to people who come in for wine tastings to begin with. It does. And it's funny because um, when I, and it's different now because I own a brewery and when I go to another brewery, I'm looking for something different. But mm -hmm. when I was just a consumer, I never, ever ordered a tasting flight. Mm -hmm. You know, as I told you, I would usually start with the pale ale and then branch out from there. Yeah. Now I do because I go to an Uber and I, I want to, you know, use my time effectively and try and understand what they do well. Right. Yeah, I've sort of done a full circle on that as well. When I started getting really into beer, started drinking a lot of, like going to a lot of breweries and trying as many beers as I could, I get the flights everywhere I went. And now it's kind of the point now where, like, if I ask the bartender what their favorite beer is, then I'll just get that. Yeah. Because likely they, they more they will more than likely give me the beer that is the good one, you know, whatever yeah. it is that the brewery makes the best. Or usually they'll tell me their favorite and then whatever they think the favorite right. is. Um, and I've stopped drinking flights. I've stopped bothering with them completely yeah. because, yeah. you know, by the end of it, you know, you really don't, at least in my experience, you can't quite make it through a flight while tasting critically and doing yeah. all the stuff you got to do. Yeah. And like, you know, the... BJCP will tell you the same thing. All right. those beer judges, they, they tell you it's really hard to drink six of the same beer and tell you which one is the best because your palate just gets fatigued so fast. Right. It's just, at a certain point, it's not fun anymore. Right. But, um, 
Which is an extra caution with IPAs. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, you get completely blasted drinking yeah. IPAs, like flavor blasted anyway. And also, you know, normal blasted. How big is your uh, brew house back there? So I brew suspect house, it's fairly small. It is. Um, it's a three and a half barrel system. Um, our fermenters are seven barrel. Okay. So we do double batches, um, which is fairly common. And so you, you know, you've got 19 different beers on tap, you said, which is pretty impressive. How often do you brew? Um, you know, usually two or three times a week. Okay. Yeah. Would you, you, you said you were focusing on trying to get some of your, like, you know, expanding your sort of production and distribution yeah. a little bit. Um, are you working with any distributors right now trying to do something We were like that? for a while and it didn't turn out well. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we... We were selling, you know, a good amount of kegs ourselves, mm. the three of us, and then we took on a distributor, and they picked up one beer, mm-hmm. Millennium Falcon, and it just made it onto a few rotating IPA taps around town. Yeah. So we went from selling 30 kegs a month down to four or five a month, and, you know. Then it became pointless. Yeah. It's like they, they weren't going to take any other beers. Yeah. Because they had decided the only thing people want are IPAs. That's all. I mean, they know sell. the same. They they learned But the our same contract thing wouldn't allow us to sell anything oh. to anyone. Oh wow! So I just got out of it. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they kind of know the same thing you learned though. Is that IPAs are what sells. Yeah. You know, what's not whether or not. Okay, so now you're most so you're self distributed to a handful of places. Right now, and like I think we'll stay that way until, you know, we we get into canning. Oh, okay, yeah. you gotta do some mobile canning, mobile operation. We might start with mobile on um, just to you know get some out the door stuff here, but I really in, in if if we're gonna distribute mm-hmm. cans, you have to do it yourself. Yeah, you can't do it at a price point um, with mobile canning that makes mm-hmm. sense to then sell it to a distributor. Okay, so what what kind of problems do you foresee kind of that coming about from that next move? Oh, the you know the biggest problem is always raising the money for it. In terms of money, you know, is is the beer half doing kind of what you hoped it would do when you opened that up? You, you, know, you started with the wine half. Is it still? How did those yeah, I mean, we, these days? We, we we sell more beer, mm-hmm. um, but you know, a, a small undercapitalized business, you're really at the whim of month to month trends. Mm-hmm. And you know, September was surprisingly weak, mm-hmm. so it's it's tough right now. But mm-hmm. October should be good. Yeah, I mean, just to ask the ask the tough questions. Yeah, how is yeah. all that? How is how is all that going, business wise? It's it's a challenge. It's a challenge, yeah. but it's not because the beer is questionable. Mm-hmm. It's it's strictly getting people in the door. Which one of your beers is your favorite right now? Mine, it's the German Pilsner. The German Pilsner, sweet. The the Brew World Order. Yep. Nice. That is your favorite beer that you all make. Yep. What's your favorite beer that you have ever had? Perhaps maybe not the. Just the first beer that comes to mind. Yeah, Mars Pilsner, M-A-H-R-S. And that um, that was probably the, the single most influential beer I've ever had. Um, and I had it at a bar in Manhattan called Jimmy's Number 43. Um, and I, at the time, I had I, never really been a fan of Pilsners. Mm. I just found them kind of... You know, yellow beer. Eh. Yeah, they didn't really excite me. Um, and so I was at this bar. It was an interesting night because um, there was a. This was in two thousand eight. 
was a tap takeover by a Japanese brewery called Hidachino. Hmm. Um, so I was there for that, and there was also a, a, a private event in, in an adjoining room. Um, if you know the singer Nora Jones, it was her birthday party. Ah. So I always remember the night for, for those two reasons. But, uh, you know, one of the Hidachino beers, they blew the keg. So they replaced it with Mars Pilsner. So Mars, the Mars Brewery is um, in Bamberg, um, which is also the town where um, Weyermann's Malting is. Mm -hmm. They're the big German malter. They make, you know, the, the best German Pilsner malt and all the adjunct malts and all that. So I just said, oh, well, you know, I've never heard of Mars. So I'll, I'll have a Pilsner. And it blew my mind hmm. so much that the rest of my stay in Manhattan, I went back to Jimmy's every night and had at least one pint of that beer. So um, I came back home and obviously wanted to try and find that beer. Well, it's, it's even to this day, it, it is hard to get because they were imported by um, Shelton Brothers in Connecticut. And there is just some weird situation with Shelton and West Coast distributors, some business argument, and they wouldn't sell out here. So um, in the 10 years since I was in Manhattan and had Mars Pilsner, I have found Mars Pilsner in bottles three times. And every time you find it, you I buy, buy it. it all. I buy it. Yeah, but well, you know, it's usually one or two bottles. Yeah, you know, it's just, I just happen to come across a bottle shop where they have one or two extras. Hmm. Um, so, but you know, the that beer never escaped my palate's memory. Right. And so, Brew World Order, that recipe I wrote with that beer in mind, and that's why it's my favorite beer because right I think on. we minimally met it and maybe exceeded it. Would you mind taking me on a tour of the brewery? I can sure. take some photos yep. and maybe yep. we can chat while we walk. Right on. So briefly, this is you know winery side. Um, so I make champagne, okay. sparkling wines. I'm one of the only wineries in the state who makes sparkling wine. And the, these racks are called Riddling Racks. And uh, they're, they're used late in the process of uh, uh, making sparkling wine ready for uh, the consumer. Um, because you do a bottle fermentation, you need to get rid of all this oh, stuff. Okay. Wait, so yeah, how do you get that out of there? So um, then uh, after it's all at the bottom, uh, we go to an instrument called a neck freezer, which mm. is basically a work table with holes in it with a um, refrigerant fluid bath below it. So you drop the bottles in, point down, and you freeze the solid material in an ice cube. Oh. So then you can turn it right side up and pop the crown cap off and all your sediment comes out as an ice cube, and then you put the champagne cork in. So, yeah, I, you know, I had never thought about that. That's a very interesting solution. Yeah. Our brewing starts with water. Uh, on the wall, um, this is a reverse osmosis uh, water purifier. Oh, okay. So city water goes in, and we're, we're fortunate in Bellingham. We've got fairly soft water. It's about 45 to 50 parts per million. Um, but what we do is we strip everything out, mm -hmm. okay? It goes into the holding tank. And then what we do is we add salt back to the water to replicate the water from the region that the style 
is associated with. Okay. Okay. So you guys go to all that extra effort for every one of your every styles? Every beer. Every beer. Okay. So I'll give you some examples. Um, so all of our IPAs and our American Pale Ales um, are made with Chico, California water. Okay. Okay. Um, Iron Gate Light, which is our American lager, St. Louis, Missouri water. Interesting. Um, our Belgian Double is West Mall. Our Belgian Pale Ale is Antwerp. Our Pilsner is Bamberg. So you're going so on all the of these mineral. All the mineral profiles are available online, and you just take the profile, and then you figure out how many grams per hundred gallons of water you need to add of various salts to recreate that water. That's a lot of effort for every style. Everyone, for, everyone. I know. If, I know of breweries that will do sort of their own signature water. You know, they'll break down. They might start with this RO water, and they might add a couple of salts to it and figure out what they want to do. But very few breweries do that kind of effort for every one of their every one of yeah. their brews. Yeah, that's really very impressive. So, all right. So then, this is a holding tank. Mm -hmm. Um. So then, water. This is a hot liquor tank. So, um, water will first go in here. Salts are added heated up um, to strike temperature and then into the mash kettle mm -hmm. for mashing and then over to the boil kettle. Okay. So this is the full setup. This is, this the is it. full size, everything you got right here. Yep. And then you'll run this guy two times to fill up one of these, one of these big yeah. boys? Yeah, sometimes we'll brew twice a day, sometimes consecutive days and pool. Okay. okay? Any, is there any problem with doing that two days in a row? Do you wind up with fermentation kind of getting going when you're not ready for it or? Um, we'll usually pitch the first day, and fermentation the first day is slow. Mm -hmm. um, so by the time we pump in the second day's wort, um, you know it's already, you know, chugging along a little bit, but it's nowhere near Pete Krausen. Right. Um, so yeah, it has not caused us any issues at all. Cool. Um, then th this is a cold liquor tank. So when we um, knock out through a heat exchanger, we've got, you know, super cold water. Mm -hmm. to run through the heat exchange, gotcha. which is really important when you're doing lagers because yeah. you need to get it down to about 50 degrees. Absolutely. So fermenters here, and then um, when everything is uh, has reached terminal gravity and you know we've done any dry hopping that we want to do for some styles, the yeast cone is uh, um, depleted, then we move our, over to the bright tank. For you know, Most of our beers are probably 70 to 90 percent carbonated out of the fermenter mm -hmm. so we just have to you know kind of finish it off with house co2 mm. and then and then we fill kegs you said house co2 is that no, that's not yeah. CO2 that you've been ga gathering has it is it uh no we have um uh we have a, a service that delivers co2 whenever we need it okay um and it also we also have a nitrogen extractor so it extracts nitrogen from the atmosphere mm. and then mixes the two together for the beer gas to right. dispense. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also pull off nitrogen um, for our the couple of beers that we nitro. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I uh, never heard of a nitrogen extractor. That's kind of yeah. neat. I know, like, they make, um, you know, back during those Reinheitsgebot days in Germany, they would, you weren't allowed to force carb with. CO2, right. but you wanted to have nicely carbonated beer, so they would capture the excess CO2 as it came off the yeast, and then re-inject that later when they needed yeah. to add some more carbonation, or you know, in some instances. So all these barrels are all wine now. It's all wine. Do yeah. you do any barrel aging of your beers? We do, yeah. So those four 
dark brown gnarly barrels are yeah. um, those are Scotch whiskey barrels ah. that have our Scotch ale in it, and we we have some of that on tap. What are your three most influential breweries? Three breweries you think of are you, of, of your as your favorite? Yeah, uh, well, number one is easy. It's Sierra Nevada, Fuller's in England would be number two. Number three, that's a tough one. You know, I'm going to go a little more local for that. Um, I, I really like Rubens. Rubens. Yeah. Um, I, I I like their diversity of beers. I, I I love their pub. You know, it's it's simple. It's not flashy. Uh, it's a great experience to visit, and you know, it's a Northwest icon. And actually, it's actually one of the largest ones in in Washington. It's mm -hmm. up in like the top fifteen or top yeah. ten or something yeah. like that. It's pretty high. It, it doesn't look like when you go there. No, it doesn't look they, like they, it at all. They might have another production place somewhere, yeah. um, but they do manage to pump a lot of beer out of a they pretty sure small place. Yeah. All right. So here's my final question for you, Bill. Those three breweries. Maybe you played this game before. Yeah. I don't know. You said Sierra Nevada, Fuller's, and Rubens. Yep. Which one would you marry? Which one would you kill? Which one would you bang? Uh, which one would I what? Bang. Which one would you have sex with? Uh, <laughs> which one would I kill? Why would I kill it? You gotta kill one of them. I, I'd, I'd kill Sierra, I guess. Why? Um, so, you know, when I, I first had Sierra Nevada Pale Ale in 1981, and they were, they were teeny tiny, right? They're, they're a behemoth now. They've lived a full life. They've lived a great life. <laughs> they can go. Yeah. All right. Killing Sierra. Um, uh, I guess I would marry Fuller's, and I'd have to bang Rubens. <laughs> you already said I it. I had Ru to answer the question. You so. already said it. Rubens is the sexiest of the three. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Bill. Thank you so much. You it's bet. been a pleasure. Let's, yeah. um, we've had a beer here this whole time. Yeah. Why do you say we grab another one? Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Bill, for taking the time to chat with me. I'll see you soon on my next visit to Bellingham. Thanks for listening to Washington Beer Talk. If you like what you heard, then you can find other episodes of the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Don't forget to like, leave a review, and share with your friends. 